Okay. Hi, ladies. Hi, ladies. I'm so glad we're all here tonight. Um, I just want to say whether you are here or whether you're out there, I'm so glad we have this opportunity. Um, I have been thinking all day today that it doesn't matter, matter whether we gather here or we gather in a different way. We can still gather and we can still hear the voice of the Lord. And that is what I pray is going to happen tonight. Um, we have been together for nine weeks. We have covered a lot of material and we have two more weeks to go. So most likely this will be how we finish up next week um, via live stream as well. So let's dig in. If anyone is joining us new tonight, I typically do not do a lot of review because we need every second we have for new material. So if you're joining tonight, I would just recommend or um, suggest that you go back and listen to the nine weeks that we have had together so far. So tonight we are going to cover Esther 7 and 8. So let's read chapter 7 and then I'll pray. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we were to be merely sold as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. Let's pray. Father God, again, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, we thank you for the time that you have given us so far and the continued time that we have tonight to finish this book, Father God. We just pray for your presence here. Lord, I pray for anyone that is home watching that, 
Lord, that you just guard and keep us from distractions so that we can truly hear what you have for us this evening. Father, I pray that you give us open eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, ears that not only hear but understand. And Father, I pray for hearts that are soft to receive anything and everything that you have for us tonight. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so we see in verse 1 that this is the day of the second banquet. And if you will remember, yesterday was the first feast. Yesterday was the day where Haman was so excited because he had been the only one invited to this first feast. Last night was the night where Haman went home to build a 75-foot gallows on which to hang Mordecai. Last night was the night where the king could not sleep and he had the chronicles read to him where he hears about what Mordecai had done. Just the morning of this feast, Haman had gone to the court to request that Mordecai be hanged by the king. And probably only hours before this, (laughs) Haman had to dress Mordecai had to put a crown on his head, had to lead him through town, saying, thus will be done to the man with whom the king wants to honor. So all of this is happening at a lightning quick speed. We know after he had to do this, he went home. He was talking with his wife and his friends, and they were the ones um, that had suggested to build the gallows. And when they heard what had happened, they told him that they believed he was going to fulfill Mordecai. And we are going to see that is exactly what is going to happen. So we see at this feast that this is actually the fifth banquet that's mentioned in the book of Esther. We had two that were given by the king, one by Vasti, and this is the second by Esther. Now, feasts in the Bible are very, very important events. And we hit on that one time when we were going through Ruth, and we'll hit it a little bit more next week. But right now, I really want to concentrate on the number five because we've looked at several numbers throughout these books and the importance and what they signify. So here we have the fifth banquet, and you can see on the chart that I have in your notes that five typically is suggestive of grace, goodness, and favor Um, toward humanity from God. It is over 300 times in the Bible. And granted, a lot of these times you all, it is, it might be the end of 35 or 55 or 65. But when you're using your concordance, as we've learned how to do, you know, really go down and look for where five is mentioned. First mention that progressive mention that we've talked about to really get the idea of this number. But I'm going to give you a few examples. few examples here. Number one, there are five books of the law, as we've looked at, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We know that even the name for this, the Pentateuch, that prefix penta actually means five. In the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness, the 
Number five is used, I don't know how many times you all, there are five curtains, five bars, five pillars, five sockets. There's an altar made of wood that is five cubits long, five cubits wide. Um, the height of the court within the tabernacle was five cubits. Over and over and over, this number is used in the building of the tabernacle, which is the presence of God with his people. In the Ten Commandments, we know that they're actually divided in two sets of five. The first five has to do with our relationship with God. The second five has to do with our relationship with others. There are five primary types of offerings that God commanded for Israel to bring. Um, those are listed there for you in your notes. And then a New Testament example, we know that Jesus multipli multiplied five loaves of barley to feed 5,000 that we see in Matthew. At this fifth feast, we are most definitely going to see evidence of God's grace and his goodness to his people when both the revelation of the truth is going to come out and judgment is going to fall. So the king asks her again, what is your wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? Third time he asks her this question. The previous two times, you all, she hasn't answered. But this time there is absolutely no hesitation in her answer. This is the perfect time. Everything has built up to this moment, and now, again, no hesitation. This is her response. Let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold. This is a very interesting choice of words she uses here because she is referencing Haman's promise of 10,000 talents of silver to the king. Remember, that was one of the hooks that he used to get the king to explain. And here she says the words, I am my people. So for the first time, she reveals her identity to the king at a time. You all think about this. This is the first time she's revealing that she's a Jew and the Jews have already been sold. <laughs> They've already been sold. And this is when she chooses to do this. Um, so for your first connection here, I have several people for you to look into because I think this declaration of Esther parallels with some words of Moses, Paul, and then, of course, you all Christ. With Moses, we see in Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, when he was grown up, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the repro reproach of Christ gr as greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And then Paul, you know, this is one of the, I believe, one of the most remarkable scriptures <laughs> that I can remember reading when I really understood what it meant. In Romans 9.24, Paul is saying that he has such great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart, for he wishes that he himself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers. You all, at this moment, Paul is saying he would trade 
his salvation for others. I can't, that's hard for me to imagine doing that. And he is feeling anguish because he can't. I also think something so encouraging here, you all, it shows the assurity of our salvation because Paul can't give it even if he wanted to. <laughs> Ladies, I believe when we are saved, it is assured. And then finally, Christ, you all, other people may have wished they could train places. Christ actually does that for us. It says, Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's 1 Peter 3.18. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.15, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Oh, <laughs> such good news, you all. And here is Esther again, the first time she's actually even revealing that she's a Jew at a time that is not only critical for the Jewish people, but dangerous for herself. So she uses the same words as Haman. She says, we have been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. This was a satanically inspired plot to totally annihilate the Jewish people. We've talked about this several times now in both books. You all, this, this has been attempted many times throughout history, the destruction of the Jews. It is going to happen at least one more time at the time of the Great Tribulation. And as you know, I've shared this. I believe this entire book of Esther is actually typological of the Great Tribulation. And we are really going to hit a lot of the typology next week. Um, but for now, she uses these same words. And I think it's interesting because it mimics the words that are said of Satan in John 10.10, 10, where it says the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So, so she is explaining this to the king. And then she says this. She says, if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. So, she tells him, if we were just going to be slaves, I wouldn't have said a word. I would have just let everything proceed. But what we're about to go through is nothing compared to your loss. Okay? So, watch what she does here. I, I think she is an unbelievably smart woman. <laughs> And we have said, we, we don't know exactly what their relationship is. We know that God has miraculously given her supernatural favor, at least at two critical points. Between those times, we really don't know because there was also the time where there was a period of over 30 days when the king didn't even call her. So we're not sure of the relationship. And I think maybe because of that, she does not presume anything about this relationship. She makes sure that she gets him 
where it would definitely hurt the royal treasury. And she's saying, what's going to happen to us is nothing compared to the loss that you, all, that you are going to face. So, thinking through that, you all, and if you remember, that this was after some of the exiles were released to go back to Jerusalem. And we know only 50,000 went. The majority of the people stayed where they were. And one of the reasons people think that they stayed was because they were so prosperous. They had lived there for years, hundreds of years at this point. They had brought much wealth into the Persian Empire. So even though Haman had promised 10,000 talents of gold, which was a lot of money that we broke down, there is no way to calculate the future loss to the king if all the Jewish people were gone. So this is what she is bringing up to him. So remember at this point, the king didn't even know the people that Haman had asked for. Haman had just brought the idea to him and said, there's a group of people in the empire. They don't follow your rules. They don't follow the laws. It would be better for you to get rid of them. He does not tell them. He does not tell the king that it's the Jewish people. And the king doesn't ask who it is. He just agrees to it after the 10,000. So we know that he gave all his authority to Haman to write the edict however he wanted it. Um, Haman did so. And we are not told whether the king even read it. So think of what all the king could possibly be hearing for the first time right now. His own wife is Jewish. (laughs) All the Jews have been sold to be killed and the loss that could come into his kingdom because of that. So here's the king's response. Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? So God's plan for this banquet could not have been more perfect in lining up every single detail to this point. God has Haman exactly where he wants him, right in front of the king, alone to face him. And I am sure Haman wishes he was anywhere else but that. So Esther says, a foe, an enemy, the wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. So here's three words that she uses here. Foe, an enemy, and the wicked Haman. So I have the Hebrew here for each one. We see that a foe is an adversary, enemy, or oppressor. The Hebrew word there is czar. Isn't that interesting? For enemy, the Hebrew ayab is to be hostile to, to treat as an enemy or to hate. And then wicked was interesting. The Hebrew is ra, and it is actually a noun. And I think that is interesting. The way it's used in this sentence, the wicked Haman, we, we don't think of that word as a noun, yet in the Hebrew, it is. And I want to read a couple passages for you where this is because I think it really brings to light what Esther is saying about Haman. In Deuteronomy 13, 11, it says, And all 
Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such raw as this among you. Next verse, 2 Kings seventeen thirteen. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your raw and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I command your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants and the prophets. And then in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, here's one we should all know. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their raw, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. There's several others there for you to read, but what I want you to also see is underneath the word raw, a different form of that word is rasha, and that's a criminal or one who is guilty of sin or wickedness. So we have raw, which is a noun, and rasha, which seems to be a person, okay, specifically a person. So for your first connection, I would like for you this week to look through Ezekiel 33:11. Break down that verse. It's very interesting because the word wicked is used several times. And if you'll go to the blue letter Bible that we've talked about how to do that, you can see which of those times it is the word raw and which of those times it is the word rasha. Um, I believe from this, it almost looks like Esther is saying, Haman is wickedness. That that, that is what he is, wickedness. Um, now, you know, I'm not a Greek or Hebrew scholar. I just try because I want to understand what the word is telling us. And you know that I believe every word in the word is important. So for your Bible study tip today, I want to take you through one thing that I think is very, very interesting, which really shows the importance of every word. Um, I come from the belief that there are absolutely no mistakes in the word of God in the original language. Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament. I do believe there can be some transitional, translational errors sometimes because all, all languages have their own operating systems and sometimes it's almost impossible to correctly exactly translate a specific word or a thought or an idea. So I do believe there can be some things that can be a little hard to understand as things get translated. Everybody that speaks different languages knows that. Um, so that's why I think it's so important to dig in to both the Hebrew and Greek. And even when it's tough, you all, there's so many tools that we have available now to help us. But Jesus himself says this. And if you will turn to Matthew 5, 17 through 18. Jesus says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now think about what Jesus is talking about here. The scripture that he would have had you all is the Old Testament. This is what he's talking about. And from the very beginning of our time together, we talked about the importance of having the Old Testament, digging into the Old Testament. The idea of not needing the Old Testament because we are New Testament um, believers. We are New Covenant believers. Thank God we are, but we need the Old Testament. And he is saying not a dot or an iota from it will pass away. And if we look at what those two things mean, I've got in Hebrew for you in your notes that yacht and what is called a tittle in Hebrew. And you can see you all, these are the smallest little marks in the Hebrew language. That yacht is like one of our apostrophes. Okay. The tittle is even smaller. It is that teeny little tail that you see on the letter bet that you don't see on the cough, that little tail. It would be very similar to the tail we have that differentiates a capital O from a capital Q. That's how small it is. And Jesus is saying, not even that, not even that is going to pass away from this until I fulfill it. That is how precise I believe this word was written. And to show this, I'm just going to tell you this because it's out there. Um, It is very interesting and you can do with it what you want. Some people say, oh, this stuff doesn't really happen. And some people spend all their time doing it. And I am not a person that goes to either extreme. But I want to show you something called equidistant letter sequence because it shows the precision of the word of God because many Bible scholars believe that of course scripture is God breathed but not only did God breathe the scripture he did it word by word because there were ancient rabbis and what they did is took the over 300,000 letters of the Torah and they wrote them down on 10 by 10 grids so that they could look for patterns, okay? So just imagine doing that. And since this time, you all, this was thousands of years ago, okay, I believe it was the 16th century, but now supercomputers have just sort of verified that the things they found actually seem to be in the Word. So what happened in the book of Genesis was they took the first T, and then they counted 49 letters because that's an, important, that's an important number. So the 50th letter ended up being an O. This is on your notes. 49 more letters, and then the next letter was an R. 49 more letters, and then there was an H, which, of course, gives us the word Torah, okay, because they don't use the vowels. Went to Exodus, same exact system, and they got the same exact word. The Torah. Then they went to Leviticus. They tried it again and it didn't work. So then they left that alone for a minute. Went to Numbers. Tried the same system. And they didn't get Torah 
they got Torah spelled backwards. And then they go to Deuteronomy, same thing, same system, Torah spelled backwards. So then they went back to Leviticus, and through this same system, they got the word Yahweh. So if you look at that mapped out, it seems to appear to be saying all the Torah points to Yahweh. So, now, here's what I'm going to say about this, you all. God doesn't keep anything hidden from us that we need for our salvation, okay? Nothing about our redemption. You all, it is all in the plain text, everything we need to know. At the same time, do I think God could possibly do things like this? Just as sort of a fingerprint on his word to say, you can trust this. Nobody could do that. Nobody could lay out not only every word, but every letter to actually build little extra bits of meaning in there. So I tend to believe these things can happen. Again, you all, some people don't. Some people think, oh, that's crazy. Don't spend your time doing that. Um, To me, it is totally possible. Um, And I think it just, again, shows the ability to trust the word of God in an even deeper way. So, So we know Haman at this point is standing before the king and it says he is terrified. So everything that has happened has just been revealed. The fact that Esther... Um, is a part of the people that Haman has set out to be destroyed, the financial windfall that Haman could have because of this. Um, And now, I'm assuming what could only appear to be a pretty measly 10,000 talents compared to what the king is going to be losing. So everything has just come into light. This word terrified in the Hebrew is ba'ath, And it means to be overtaken by sudden terror. Luke 8, 17 says, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. This verse was true for Haman. And you all, this verse is true for all. (laughs) I believe that Haman's wake-up call, you all just came too late for him, but ours does not. Ours does not. In Ephesians 5, 11 through 17, in this whole chapter, Paul is speaking to believers on how to walk. Um, It contains many practical tips on day-to-day living as a believer. So when you look into this passage this week, pay close attention to verses 11 through 17, and I think you're going to get a lot of insight that is going to connect to what just happened to Haman. And then as an application, I just believe verses like this are a call and a reminder for all of us to examine our lives, you all, things. And I've got a list of things there that you can read on your own just to think about in your own life with the idea as you answer these things, 
it will just bring to light. Is your public persona the same as your private persona? Because if it's not, then we need to examine that and we need to do something about it. Because at some point, everything comes to light. Everything comes to light. Doesn't mean we're not forgiven for things. Absolutely. But things will come to light. So anything that needs to be taken care of, now is our time to take care of them. So verse 7. The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. So Haman stays to beg. And you all, again, this is another reversal. It seems that every single detail in this story is getting reversed. Every single one. A few chapters ago, you all, Mordecai had asked and commanded, actually, Esther to go before the king and beg for the lives of the Jews. And now Haman is the one begging for his own life before the king. So the king, it says, he arises in his wrath and goes into the palace garden. A couple things. Think about what incited the king's wrath. What all did he just discover that brought about his wrath. There was deception, injustice, greed, evil intent. Could group all these things together, you all. Um, Sin. Sin is what incites the wrath of our king. Here, we have a worldly king incited to wrath, And he removes himself, it says, to the palace garden. Now, we're going to hear at the end of the chapter what appeases his wrath, okay? But right now, he is in a state of wrath. So it says he leaves and goes to the palace garden. Now, I tried to find a diagram, a floor plan of what this palace would have looked like. And you can see it here on your notes. And this is what I found very fascinating, Okay, and I can't, this is one of those things I cannot prove, but this is where my mind goes when I read something like this. We know this garden had been mentioned before in the very first chapter when one of his feasts, when he throws such a big feast for so many people, it was in the garden and we talked about how huge it was and all the columns. It was very specific what this place looked like. Okay, so from this map of the palace, You can see that place at the very top of your floor plan there because all those dots are columns, okay? So that would be one of the the public places in the palace. Now, the private quarters would be directly opposite towards the back of that floor plan. So you can see if if this is a true rendering, that's a good little distance away, okay? Because her feast would have been in her private quarters. And if he was going to this public garden, that means he would have had a little walk. Okay? So he walks to the garden. So here's my thought. 
Sometimes when we're really angry at a situation, I don't know about you all, but sometimes I physically have to remove myself from the situation to give myself a chance to calm down. So I'm just wondering if the king might have been doing this at this time, okay? Physically removing himself to calm down. Now, not sure, again, how long of a walk this would have been, but what if that had happened? What if he had removed himself? What if he had had just enough time to possibly cool down a little bit? And maybe even think, well, maybe this isn't as bad as I thought. 10,000 talents, that's pretty good. I mean, there's a lot of things that you could think about, okay? So, here again, just my thought. But look what happens when he returns. The second he walks back into her quarters, you all, where there was wine drinking, which might have been why he fell. (laughs) Remember, this entire book is God using natural things to bring about his purpose. There's no crazy miracles. It all just seems to be one natural thing after another. What happens when people drink? They stumble. They stumble. So here the king has separated himself, but right now when he is walking back into the queen's quarters, he has stumbled and fallen on top of Esther on her couch. So my thought is, if he had cooled down at all, oh, you all, this was like extra guarantee that he wasn't wasn't leaving that behind, okay? His his wrath was about to happen towards Haman. So he says, um, where are his words? Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? So again, any any doubt of his wrath appeasing there, it had just been rekindled. So for another connection this week, look through Romans 8. um, Read Romans 8, 28, another scripture, you all, that we are all so familiar with. For God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. All things. That's, that's very difficult to think about, that all things can work together for our good if we love him. Haman can't say that. These things are not turning out for his good, okay? They are turning out for the good of Esther. They're turning out for the good of Mordecai because they love him. One thing with this verse that I would mention as well, you all, when we think about this and we think of things in our life that we might not think of as good, especially at the time, I would just suggest that sometimes our definition of good might not be the same definition that God has. As humans, I believe we see good things based on our own comfort, our own ease, our own desires, okay? We call those things good when those things happen in our life. Um, For God, good things 
are things that bring about his plans and his purposes. And those things can look quite different sometimes. So for that, because that can be, that can be hard to reconcile sometimes, um, ladies, that's where trust comes in. <laughs> that is where trust comes in. Because sometimes very hard things in our lives bring about the good purpose of God. And we might not see it at the time. Okay, We might not ever see it. We might not get to see it until the other side. Sometimes we do, though. Um, so think through that. I think that is so comforting when we go through trials and hard times. That those things... Ladies, if we love him, God can cause those things to work out for our good. So as an application this week, think through times in your life. Have you ever, have you ever gone through a really difficult time where you could not get your head around it? But when you were on the other side of it, looking back, you realized how good it was. Um, Can you think of any teeny, tiny, small circumstances? They just seem to be almost accidental at the time. And then again, looking back, you realize they weren't so small at all. Uh, Again, I think this is the message of this book, both, both of those things. So when this happens, it says they covered Haman's face. And you all think about this. This man had been the closest to the king. He was the one that had direct access to the king. He is the one who had the king's ear, obviously. Um, He was supposed to be his most trusted servant and advisor, and now he is not even allowed to gaze on him. His head is covered, and he is taken away. And Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, you know, there were probably a lot of people in the palace that disliked Haman, no doubt. So, so Harbona immediately steps up, and it's almost hard for me to read this without laughing, but he says, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. You all, look at all the information he gives in one sentence, okay? What Haman had been doing the night before. Details on how big the gallows were. And then even just to stick the knife in a little more, almost. Remember Mordecai, the one that saved your life. Okay, this is the guy Haman is trying to kill. Okay, all of this in one sentence. And the king's reply, hang him on that. Hmm. So the king's method of justice for Haman was the very trap Haman had laid for someone else. The cruel, humiliating, torturous death that he intended for Mordecai now fell on him. Psalm 7, 15 through 16 says, whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. 
The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. I think we absolutely see that here. So they hanged Haman on the gallows. The public execution that Haman had planned became his own. So his justice came swiftly. And again, remember, we've talked about this many times, this entire book taking place over so many years, you all, from the beginning, from the genealogies that we went through at the beginning of our story to now. But we see, you all, once a couple of catalysts happened in this story, then all of a sudden everything sped up, okay? And once that happened, once things started going quickly, it's like they became faster and faster and faster until they came to their conclusion. And again, we'll break that down some next week. So an application here. Because at this point, he was, he's getting hung. So their enemy is defeated. But we know, according to his edict, that they still have this day in their future. Okay, the edict cannot be wiped out. Haman is dead, but this, this day is still on the books, the 13th day of Adar, when the Persians are allowed to kill the Jews. So, so our enemy, you all, in your application, is also a defeated foe. We know his end. We know he does not win. Yet we can go through some horrendous times because of him. You all, they still have some tough times ahead that they are going to face. But knowing that our foe is defeated, you all, should be another thing that just helps us get through some of these hard times that we find ourselves in. So at this point, it says the wrath of the king abated. So in verse 7, we saw what incited the king's wrath. Now we see what nullifies it, and it's justice. Where did his wrath end? After the justice was done, after the guilty was punished, the king's wrath subsided after Haman paid for his crime. So I have that word there for you. You all, the word wrath in Hebrew is the word shema, and it means fury, hot displeasure, or rage. I have this as an option for you, and I just I will warn you, this is a tough word study, um, but it will be a very fruitful word study to look into wrath. Um, as you know, go back through your notes to see exactly how to do the word studies, but I think you will find some surprising things that come to light in that word. Um, so if you were up for that, I would highly suggest it. So the enemy is vanquished, but the Jews are still in a horrible predicament. The decree to er eradicate them was still in effect. And according to the law, there's nothing that could be done about it, even if a king was to change his mind. So this is where we are when we pick it up in, verse, in chapter 8. So let's read this. On that day, 
King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out his golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before him. And she said, if it please the king and if I have found favor in his sight, And if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month which is the month of Savan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of all the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all people, And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service. They rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews 
a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Wow. Mm. Wow. (laughs) So on that day, King Asterisk gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. So this was a very interesting little difference here. And I'm, I'm meant to bring this book. I'll bring it next week. But it is a Bible where you have the entire text and over it you have the entire Hebrew text. Okay. So though I can't read Hebrew, I can definitely see that one word is different from another. Okay. So if you remember at the beginning of chapter 6, 1, it says on that night. And if you remember, the night of the first feast, you all, it was the same night, okay? They had the feast, and that particular night, that same night, Haman went home and built the gallows. That same night, the king couldn't sleep and had the chronicles read, okay, the same night. This, it says, on that day, but it's actually a different word, and it actually is translated on the day, on the day. Because I think we're going to see here later when we get to verse 8, a little passage of time has happened. Not much, but somewhere in this chapter, we're now into the third month. Okay? And on this day, I think what is being connected is that on the same day that the king gave the house of Haman to Esther is the same day where Mordecai is presented before the king and it's revealed who he is, okay? And in that, what we see, you all, that not only did enemy fall, but then everything that was his was given to her. <laughs> everything given to her. In Proverbs eleven seven, it says, when the wicked die, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. Proverbs thirteen twenty two, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Wow, what an example of that. So everything given to her, and then Mordecai comes before the king, for Esther now says who he is, So he had not long ago just learned that his wife was a Jew. And now Mordecai, this man who had previously saved his life, now he sees that they're married. Married? My goodness. Sees that they are related. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So this signet ring that had been given to Haman giving him all the authority of the king, was now Mordecai's. So he carried the same authority. This plot that Haman had devised cost him his position, his possessions, his authority, his very, his very life. It cost him everything. And everything that he had just lost is now going to who he thought of were his enemies. So something to think about. Do you think Haman saw any of this coming? (laughs) 
probably not up until the time that his wife and his friends said something to him. But you all, he was running into this, running into this plan that he had. Um, and it would end up costing him everything. And sometimes I just think if we might not see sin as serious as it is, do we really see the price tag of sin as high as it really is? The price tag of sin is high. It is high. So everything is given to Mordecai. And we know because this ring signifying his authority, if you think back to what the king had said about Haman when he gave him his ring, when he gave him this position, it was that he was going to set above all the other princes. All the other servants were going to bow and revere him as the second person to the king. So this is exactly what Haman moved into. That the time Haman fell, Mordecai rose. So Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And everything we see, again, you all, every single detail of our story keeps turning. Total irony in every single detail. Even after his death, even after his death, these things keep happening. So Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that had been devised against the Jews. When the king held out his golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. So this time we see this is a division. She's going before the king. We know it's some type of official capacity. Again, he seems to be in his court again because he has the scepter. Okay, he has the scepter that he um, reaches out to her for the second time. And when she approaches him, you all, at this point it says she falls at his feet, weeps, and pleads with him. Now, if you remember, the first time that he um, held out his scepter to her and she approached him, all she did was ask him to come to a banquet, okay? That was her first request. And what I want you to see here is, again, I believe this is a picture, you all, of prayer. This first time, she went to him with a petition, okay? She wanted him to come to a banquet. This time, we see her falling at her feet, weeping and begging, not for herself, but for others. And I believe this is a picture of intercession. And as we think through this, you all, and we think through our own prayer life, there, there is most definitely more than one way to pray, more than one way we should be praying. At least four I can think of. There's probably more, but definitely prayers of praise and thanksgiving, petition and intercession. And if we think of petition as a request for ourselves and intercession as a request for others, coming to God for others, I would just have you think through this week, how, how is your prayer life? 
Do you do both in your prayer life? Is it more petition or do you also have intercession? Do you have other types of prayer in your prayer life? And as you're thinking through those things, because I do believe you all, we should have all. I absolutely believe we should have all. Jesus himself in Matthew 6 shows us how to pray. And what I think is so beautiful about this is sometimes I feel we can so complicate things that are actually quite simple. And Jesus lays out a very simple plan for our prayers. So if we look at this and you can turn to Matthew 6. And this is going to be like our extra topic for the week. A couple of weeks ago, we hit fasting. Last week, temptation. This week, I want to look a little bit into prayer. Okay, so this in Matthew 6, 19 through 13, this is actually Jesus's response to his disciples' question that just says, how do we pray? How do we pray? Because prior to this, Jesus had warned them to not pray the way their religious leaders did. Okay, so he's saying, don't pray this way. So then their immediate question is, well, teach us how to pray. How do we pray? Okay, so earlier he had warned them not to stand on the street corners seeking attention as the religious leaders did. He had encouraged them to pray without seeking approval of people. He warned them against giving money, praying and fasting in public. So after all these warnings, then he lays out what he wants them to do. Because here's what would have happened to these Jewish people And several of his disciples were Jewish and they would have learned to pray from the Jewish leaders. Okay. There are other books and writings and oral traditions that the Jewish people adhered to just like they did this. Okay. Sometimes maybe, well, not maybe, sometimes more than this. And we know nothing supersedes this. But they had other other writings and traditions that they followed. One is the Talmud, which is just the oral Torah. The oral Torah, and I'm simplifying this, you all, but this will give you the basics. The writing of these, this oral Torah is called the Mishnah. And then one section of the Mishnah is called the Berkahat. And that section deals a lot with prayer. So I'm just going to show you a couple of things that are put in here. Because you all, this, this was what was happening with the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees. They were demanding so many more things of the people than this required. All these extra little things that were crippling people. They, you could not do them all. So some examples of this, um, right out of the Berkerot, it says that they were encouraged every day to pray 18 benedictions per day with morning, afternoon, and evening prayers. Um, In one spot, 
There were rules about when a person could pray and exactly what they could pray. There were rules about when to lie down and pray, when to stand up and pray. Um, in the Burkharat, chapter 2, 3, it indicates that a Jew who could write the Shema softly without making any error, then his prayer obligation would be fulfilled. And then in the Mishnah, we see, and this is a, just a direct quote, one may stand to pray in a solemn frame of mind. The pious one used to tarry one hour before they would pray. Okay? So all these extra rules that were put on people's prayer. So Jesus is just saying that this is all you need to do. When you pray, do this, and then he leads them through the Lord's Prayer. So as you're going through this this week, think about a couple of things and really focus on every line of the words, the Lord's Prayer, exactly what words are being used. Um, do you see all four types of prayer in this one prayer, praise, petition, intercession, thanksgiving, look for those things? Do you see any of these specific rules <laughs> that we have just talked about in here. Um, really dig into that. I think it might be freeing for some of us in our prayer lives. Um, it is simple and yet productive. And I, I oh, you all for me, that, that's how I need my prayer life to be simple, but I want it to be fruitful. So look into that this week. At this point, I believe her change, you all, shows that she actually felt safe at this point for her own personal safety. I think she felt secure in Mordecai's safety. Look what she's doing now. <laughs> she is now safe and secure. Probably the person she loves the most is safe and secure, and yet she still goes to the king on behalf of people she will never know, she will never meet, and begs for their life. She is weeping for them. And I don't know about anybody else, but that makes me think. Do I weep for anybody I don't know? Do I beg and pray? <laughs> for others the way she is doing here because and I'll just use my own pronoun I'm in the same position as her I am safe and secure with the king I know my safety is guaranteed and I also know many others is not am I doing what she is modeling here that was a big wake-up call to me this week, you all, in my prayer life. Um, because I, I do these things I ask you to do. <laughs> if I'm writing them down here, I am doing them myself. And unfortunately, in my own prayer life, I seem to see a lot more petition than I do intercession. And this is telling me, do something about that. It's not too late. It's never too late, ladies. This... We've said this over and over. This is what this does. 
this shows us things in our own life. This is a mirror where we, truth exposes things in our life. And this is something that was exposed in me this week. Verse five. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if this thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in the provinces of the king. So now nothing could be done about the edict that was already out, that had already gone out into the provinces, but they could actually write another edict that could put the Jews in a more favorable position. So this is the plan now. So at this point, she says, how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Again, look at the words she uses. Calamity to her people destruction of her kindred. She's not talking about her personal calamity or destruction. I think this is further evidence that she feels secure now. And now you all, she is going to work for others. She's not just sitting back because she's safe. She is fighting for the lives of others. King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman... And they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with his ring cannot be revoked. I don't know about you, but I hear a change in his response here. His previous responses had almost seemed very grandiose. Whatever you want, up to half my kingdom, it's yours. Almost showing his wealth and his power. And I almost see a softness here. Like, I've already given you his house. I've hung him because of what he was going to do to you. Yes, take, take the ring, let Mordecai write write this any way that he wishes. Um, I, I think there might be a softness happening to the king at this point. So in verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Savan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. So for the third time, you all, we get a glimpse of this incredible communication system that works throughout this empire. And we also get our time frame. And if you want to flip back to your calendar there, we see that some time has gone by because we are now in the third month. We know this day that the edict takes place is on the 13th day of the 12th month. So that's very important because, because we know they have 
what is that, nine, nine months, nine months to prepare for this. So he writes in the name of the king. And I think there's some interesting words here. For the first time, it doesn't just talk about horses. It talks about swift horses. It says the king hurried to do this. I I believe there's an urgency here on the king's part to get out this edict that we didn't see present when the other edicts were going out. So this is what, this is what the edict says. And listen carefully to the wording. It says, Jews who were in every city could gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th day of Adar, of the month of Adar. So now, the Jews were going to be allowed on this day to gather and to defend themselves if someone attacked them. So he writes this edict. It is sent out. And you all, even though... The words sound very, very similar to Haman's edict. (laughs) I would say the heart behind the edict is very, very different because there's one little detail that makes all the difference. One detail that makes all the difference. We'll get to that in just a second, but I... It's important that this goes out and it talks about it being publicly displayed. So this edict goes out. It is publicly displayed everywhere so that anyone who had any thought of taking part on this day, they now know what could happen. Okay. They now know the day might not be as easy as they've been thinking it was going to be for these three months, okay? Now the Jews are actually allowed to defend themselves. So it says they needed to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. Now this is kind of a tricky word, vengeance, because of verses like Romans twelve nineteen that says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So this is what the edict says, and this is what the scripture says. So we need to dig in a little bit here and see what is actually being called for in this edict that was different from the first edict. Okay? The first edict was written that the Persians were allowed to kill, destroy, annihilate anyone because they were a Jew. That was the only, the only catalyst there. It was very personal, okay? They were a Jew, so they could be killed. This new edict is written that you can defend yourself, you can kill 
if someone is attacking you. So it takes out the personal, you all. It makes it impersonal based on a person's actions, not on the person themselves. Do you see the difference? Okay. One is called retribution and one is called retaliation. So if we look at those, retaliation is the act of hurting someone or doing something harmful to someone because they've done something harmful to you or there's even a perception that they've done something harmful to you. That's retaliation. And if you look at the list there, retaliation is personal, it is amoral, punitive, usually vindictive, bitter, and it is human. Retribution, on the other hand, is a deserved punishment for a crime committed. A deserved punishment for a crime. So it's impersonal. It is moral, consequential, judicious, and just, and it is godlike. If you've ever heard that term, the retributive justice of God, this is what this, this is talking about. It is a deserved punishment for a crime. And there's several different verses that you can look through on your own to see the difference between these two, wor- two words. But what I would say is that Haman's edict was all about retaliation. He wanted to pay the Jews back for what they had done to his ancestors years ago. He wanted to kill Mordecai because Mordecai didn't honor him, didn't bow to him, and didn't fear him. It was all personal. How Mordecai writes his new edict, it is all retributive. It is, you are only allowed to do this if somebody is committing a crime against you. So the heart between these two things is very, very different. And we're going to see next week the outcome is also very different. But this day, you all, the 13th day of Adar which was coming in about seven months, both of these things were going to be happening simultaneously. Both of these edicts go into effect on the very same day. I cannot imagine that day. I cannot imagine what life would be like the seven months leading up to this. It's it, truly unthinkable. So this was written, and couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's servants by this in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. So again, we see a sense of urgency here by the choice of words. And then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. So another reversal here. The very things Haman wanted for himself, 
royal robes and a crown, Mordecai was now given without even asking for them. Fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa, which several chapters before was in total confusion, you ought now, there's shouting and rejoicing. So it says the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. I broke all of those words down there for you so you can look through those this week. But I want to pay specific attention to the word joy here because joy, what we have to understand is, again, that this trial was still coming. This did not knock out the trial for them. The day was still going to come. It didn't erase off the counter off the calendar. So in James 1, 2 through 4, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's a tough verse. And I know we just did James together, but... Y'all, if we want to mature in our walks, we have to go through some trials. Um, And when we do, this is the outcome. Think through those things that are promised to us. Steadfastness, being made perfect, complete. Those are some incredible promises that we have when we walk through trials and not only go through them, going through them correctly by having an attitude of joy. And this is what they were choosing to do. Day's still coming, but they were rejoicing. They were rejoicing. In your notes, there's a list there of just the difference between happiness and joy. Um, Happiness is all about our circumstances, Joy is a fruit of the Spirit that we get from God by being in His presence. Happiness is an emotional response, and joy is an act of our will. It's a choice. We choose to have joy. Happiness is fleeting, has ups and downs because it is based on what is going on around us, and joy is is eternal. Joy is eternal. You all, joy should be one of the markers of us as believers. In Philippians 4, 4, it says rejoice, which just means to show great joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Should be one of the things you all that... Um, just marks us as a believer. And ladies, I would just say at times like we're in now, (laughs) things were happening quickly in this book. I don't think it's accidental that we are going through Esther right now. Things are happening very quickly. I would have never thought last week, standing up here, that this was going to be this week. So many things happening. You know, we have a world that is confused, that is scared, not sure of what's going on. And, you know, we 
we can have eternal joy through times like this. Eternal joy because, again, we know, we know what's going to happen. You all, we know the end. We know our, our end. We have the truth that the world needs. And we can walk in joy and peace at a time when the world is not. So in every province and in every city, wherever the command and the edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, feasts and holidays. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear had fallen on them. A couple of things I want to hit here. Number one, I have a sort of long connection here for you, but again, it is an incredible passage when you dig into it. I want you to think as quickly as things happened for Haman, some pretty wonderful things are now happening for the Jews very quickly. Okay, the edict could not be overridden, but another one could be written for their safety and protection. So now they're having a feast, they're having a party, they are celebrating, okay? There is a story in Acts 16, 22 through 36. And I first discovered this. It was actually our life group going through a verse-by-verse study of Acts, which was an incredible time. I learned so much in this study. And there was a time where Peter and Silas were thrown in jail. They had just... Um, Paul. Who did I say? Oh, Paul and Silas are in jail. They had just met a demon-possessed girl who was a diviner for her masters, and she brought in a lot of money. And they freed her, and then they took Paul and Silas before the magistrates um, to get them in trouble, and they were put in jail, and the jailer was tasked with keeping them. So he put um, shackles on them to keep them. And in the middle of the night, you all, their shackles just fall off. They're just free. And when the jailer sees this, he has such fear that he wants to throw himself on his sword. He wants to kill himself. And right then, Paul just says, no, wait, we're, we're here. Don't, don't hurt yourself. And read this story it is so powerful in an instant, an instant, this man went from thoughts of suicide. Two lines later, he gets saved. He says, what must I do to be saved? And then it says his whole family is saved. Oh, that is incredible, you all. Good news changes things quickly. We're seeing it in Esther, and you can read about it in this story as well this week. So, many people declared themselves Jews. This word declared in Hebrew is yahad, and it means became. They became Jews. They weren't just saying it to kind of maybe cover themselves, you all. They became Jews. And what was the motivation Fear. Fear. I don't know about you all, but I find that fascinating. I find that fascinating. 
um, their allegiance seemed to change when they considered the outcome of what was going to happen. When they knew the truth of what could happen that day, they changed sides. Okay? And here's what I would like for you to think about this week, because this is what I have been thinking about a lot this week. What do you think about the thought of fear as a motivator to the gospel? Y'all, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. Can we say that about the world that does not know Jesus? They, they have some things to fear. <laughs> there is a lot coming. There is a lot coming. They were told what was coming, and they made a different choice. And I just wonder sometimes if people are really told in love, you all, in love, what is coming, could that be a motivator for people to change their minds? It definitely happened here. It happened here. So think through that. Think through that. Um, These people had a knowledge also of something we are usually never given. This was a day coming where probably a lot of people were going to die. Okay? Most people do not know the day on which they're going to die. Okay? They had a good chance. A lot of people had a chance of dying on this day. If you knew that day, would you live different? Would you do things different? Would you maybe do some things you haven't been doing that you've been putting off? Um, Another thing to think about here, James 4, 13 through 14 says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. You all, none of us know what our tomorrow is. None of us know how much time we have. We saw this in Ruth again, whether our time is short because we live for typically 80 years, you all, which is pretty short, um, or whether our time is short because Jesus is coming back. I, I would just commend you to live like your life is short. Don't put things off. We can't presume on the time we have, whatever time we have, we need to be using it um, as God has told us to use it. Chuck Missler says this, and I love this quote. He says, tomorrow is the day when idle men work and fools repent. Tomorrow is Satan's today. He cares not what good resolutions you form if only you schedule them for tomorrow. (laughs) So, Think about this time, you all. I believe in this whole crazy period we're in that a lot of us have given, been given a gift of time that we have not had before. I know I seem to have a lot more time this week than I have had. What are we doing with that time? 
take this time seriously. I think it's purpose. I know it's purposeful. What are we doing with it? Um, I believe a lot of people are going to be using it to watch TV. <laughs> what are we going to choose to do with this time? We had, we had a family meeting in our family, and we had to all bring personal goals and family goals that we were going to try to accomplish for this time that we were home. And it was pretty interesting, pretty interesting what came out of that, you all. This, this can be a time that can be life-changing I know it can be hard. I know it can be scary. I know there is a lot of unknowns. But think seriously about what to do with this time that we have. And if there's anything, you all, that you've been putting off, anything you need to fix or change or do differently, anybody you need to talk to that maybe you've been thinking, oh, I'll talk to them tomorrow. I'll talk to them next week or next month. Maybe this is some things you could think about doing within this time frame. So next week, ladies, we're going to conclude. We'll do the last two chapters. And then, like I said, we will be hitting the typology of the book as well. So thanks for joining us.